0: It's about the birth of John the Baptist, and Zechariah's song. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbours were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? for the Lord's hand was with him. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago. to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Uh, well, good evening. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Willingdon Baptist Church. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to kick in uh, to God's Word and explain that passage to us. But before I do, I want you to turn to the person next to you. Say hello. Uh, yeah, say hello. Ask your name, uh, what their name is. Say your name. And then I want you to ask them a simple question. The question is this. Are you good at keeping promises? Are you good at keeping promises? So have a chat to the person next to you and ask them that question. So maybe you can continue those conversations afterwards over dinner uh, and continue to explain if you're good or not at keeping your promises. I'll explain a second if I am, but before I do, I'm going to pray. And so if you'd like to pray with me, uh, please bow your heads and close your eyes with me. If you're not too sure what prayer is, it's just a time when we talk to God. uh, And if you agree, say amen at the end, which just means I agree. So how about we pray? Uh, Father God, as we examine the life of John we pray that you will send us your Holy Spirit to fill us and empower us as you did with John. As we open the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Bible, Holy Spirit, we pray that you may teach us. If there is sin or rebellion in our lives, we pray that you will show this to us and that you reveal to us Jesus, our Savior. Father, I pray that this time may be Spirit-filled, that it will be pleasing to you and that it will be profitable to your people. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know about you, if or not you're good at keeping promises. Uh, Personally, I can do a better job at times at being faithful to my promises. Let me give you an example. Uh, I have two boys that are here tonight, Elijah who's uh, five now and Isaac who's two. Uh, And a few months ago when I was renovating my house, I promised to my son Elijah that we'll have a family movie night. In other words, they'll watch a movie on a Friday night, eat some popcorn, snuggle on the couch. But unfortunately, I didn't stay true to that promise. And instead, what I did is I put on a movie for Eli. I gave him the popcorn, and then I left him and I went and worked on the house. I then came back a few. Oh no, sorry. Eli then came to me a few hours later and said to me, "Dad, Dad, it's time to watch a movie." To which I then turned to Eli and said, "I'm really sorry. You just watched a movie, and it's now time for bed." As you can imagine, at any at 7 or 30 at night, most kids cry anyway, but he was just in tears. It broke him. And for the next few days, he kept on saying, Dad, you didn't keep your promise. You didn't keep your promise. You know, it broke me as a father, and it taught me a lesson about trying to not make promises to your children you cannot keep. I wonder if you're good at keeping promises or not. My guess is that I'm not alone at being at failing at times to keep promises. You know, maybe you're really good at keeping tangible promises, such as watching a movie with someone or doing specific things. But I think broadly in life, there's also broader promises, which each of us can find it difficult to be faithful in. Specifically, if you're a follower of Jesus, then I know not everyone of us here is tonight, that's okay, but I'm just saying if you are a follower of Jesus, then um, there'll be times in your life, I'm guessing, be it through your mouth or your heart, that you make promises to God. You make promises about how you'll be faithful to Him how you want to grow in holiness or how you want to share the good news of the gospel, or how you want to serve him for his glory. And I think trying to be faithful to such a big promise as that can be difficult for all of us. And I think at times we can fail. I think through the ups and downs of life, as we go through tragedy and triumph, if we just go through different seasons, we can find it difficult to fulfill that promise of our heart. And in those times, be it now or in the future, what we need is encouragement. What we need is encouragement. And so tonight I want to give us two truths about two truths which will hopefully encourage us in those seasons. And the two, two truths are this. The first one is that God is faithful to us. God is faithful to us. And the second one is that we can be faithful to Him. We can be faithful to Him. You see, I think at times in those seasons we can feel a bit crippled and we're like, how can I keep on living this life? How can I keep on following Jesus? It seems so difficult. Well, what I want to explain to you tonight is that we can follow Jesus and that we can be faithful to him, not flawlessly, but we can do it nevertheless. So there are two points that I want to get into your brain. And so let's talk about the first one in particular to start off, and that is that God is faithful to us. God is faithful to us. To do that, I'll get to the book of Luke in a second. But beforehand, I need to zoom out of Luke and I look at the storyline of the Bible. And I just want to remind you of a few of God's promises in the Old Testament. So to begin with, in the book of Genesis, that's the first book in the Bible, we're told that God created humanity in His image to know Him, to be like Him, and to love Him. But in Genesis 3, we know that humanity fell short, sinned against God. And what occurs is that God judges humanity for that sin, but also promises to humanity that He'll save them from that sin. Throughout the rest of the Bible, the storyline is basically about a faithful God who pursues unfaithful people. And in Genesis 12, specifically, God promises to a man called Abraham that God will bless the world through Abraham's offspring. Abraham then has many sons, as the song goes, if you know that song. And eventually, his sons turn into the nation Israel. And the nation Israel has a king called David. And then God promises to King David that through his offspring, the Messiah, or in other words, the Christ will come. The promised king, the the perfect king. Eventually, the Bible keeps on going It gets to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And in the book of Malachi, what is promised is that before this king comes, the Lord, that someone else will come to prepare his way. Someone who is spirit-filled and who is like the prophet Elijah. After Malachi, there is then silence. Painful silence. Silence that is more painful than an elevator ride or an awkward date or you know a group conversation and that awkward silence that occurs, painful silence for 400 years. That God was speaking to His people and then He was silent until the Gospels, and specifically until an angel appears to a man called Zachariah, a priest whose name means God remembers. God remembers. In Luke 1, uh, for the last few weeks, we've learned that Zechariah is a faithful man, as he's a priest, he's in ministry, that he's a married man, but unfortunately that his wife is unable to have children. And what we learn is that Zachariah and his wife had been praying for a child for a long time. And then what occurs is when Zechariah is on duty in the, in the temple in Jerusalem, angel Gabriel appears to him and says, your prayers have been answered. You're going to have a baby, a boy, and he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and his name is going to be John. Now, unfortunately, Zechariah didn't trust this angel. He didn't trust in God's word. And so the angel muted him until he was able to have a baby. I mean, until he was able to have the baby John. And so of all that context in mind, all of God's promises in mind and what's occurred in Luke 1, let's now look at verse 57 to 58. So verse 57, which should hopefully come up on the screen, says this. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. Now, let's stop there. There's one important detail that we can't skip when it comes to this narrative or this story. And the important detail is this. Elizabeth was old. She was old. Like, she was really old. She wasn't just past the baby-making years. She was more like great, maybe even great-great-grandma. Like, picture that. Like, she, she's old, Okay. And you're probably thinking, Joel, how do I know this is important? Well, I want you to remember that in Luke chapter 1, when the angel appeared to Zechariah and said, you're going to have a baby, you know, Zechariah turns to the angel and says, but my wife is old. You know, he doesn't say my beautiful wife I love is barren, but he says she's old. And now look, if you're you're married or even if you're not married, you know that you don't say that your wife is old. You don't even hint that your wife's old. You don't even think that she's old. Unless she actually is really old, and then it's okay. Elizabeth is old. I want you to grasp that, okay? Wrinkles, walking stick, you know, mobility scooter. Oh no, whatever you want to picture, Like, she's, she's old. But then I also want you to see that this is not just Zachariah. I want you to think, when the angel Gabriel goes to Mary, he says to Mary, he says, and you're, he says Mary, you're going to have a miraculous virgin birth. Oh, by the way, your relative Elizabeth, she's going to have a baby, and, and, and she's really old. It's, like it's emphasized quite clearly to us. And so as we think that, and we come to verse 57, we should be thinking, okay, is God going to be faithful to his promises? Is he going to be faithful to Zechariah? Is he going to be faithful to Malachi? And is Elizabeth going to have a baby miraculously? Is she going to have a healthy baby, not a deformed one? Is she going to have a healthy baby who's a boy? Because in this circumstance, a girl would be a big disappointment. Okay? And so what happens? What happens? Well, as we see, obviously God is faithful to his promises. Elizabeth has a baby boy. And then all her neighbors and relatives gather around because it's a miracle to celebrate in a joy, but also to help her name her baby. You know, it's incredible how things do not change. Everyone has an opinion on what to name uh, other people's babies and what not to. Uh, Specifically, I love my mum, but she's a teacher. And as all teachers know, they're the worst at talking about baby names because they've obviously always met some kid who's a rat bag with a certain name. Oh, it's so frustrating so we just don't tell her anyway I'm getting off board now what's going on here is that all the crowd said to Elizabeth you should name your baby Zachariah after his father you know because I had no imagination back then and what occurs well Elizabeth says no we're going to call him John and then they turn to Zachariah and they're expecting that he will write down because he can't speak his name should be Zachariah but instead he writes down his name is John is John you see, here Zechariah didn't doubt that he had faith in God's promises, that this little baby boy, his son, would be a great man that would prepare the way for the Lord. After he says that the baby will call called John, we're then told that Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit, praises God and then prophesies about the future, how God will be faithful to his promises and how he will use this baby to prepare the way for the Lord. Specifically, when talking about how God is faithful to his promises, a quick summary is that God is a promise-keeping God. That God is a promise-keeping God. In 2013, in the NBA draft, the number one pick was a guy called LeBron James. If you don't know who LeBron is, there'll be a photo of him here. Uh, he's six foot six, 120 kilograms, so he's a little bit bigger than me, uh, a little bit more talented. Um, Anyway, when he was drafted, he was a 19-year-old, just finished high school, and he's been drafted into the NBA. Really rare for someone to do this. But everyone thought that he was going to be the next Michael Jordan. He got drafted into his hometown, the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Cleveland, or the city of Cleveland, sorry, in America, uh, at that time had not won a championship for about 40 years in any of the major sports, baseball, basketball, uh, football, hockey, anything. Not a thing not a championship. And so, they were excited for LeBron, hoping he would be the one that would fulfill this, I guess, desire, this longing to win a championship. For seven hard years, LeBron did what he could, but unfortunately, he fell short. He came really close a few times, but he was unable to win the championship. And so in 2010, when the big money moved, he moved to Miami, to the Miami Heat, where he actually ended up did win the championship twice. And then at the end of his contract, everyone was freaking out. Where's LeBron going to go? One of the best players in the world. And he said, I'm coming home. I'm going back to Cleveland. And he promised to his hometown that he was going to bring the championship home. What occurred? Well, first year he came, he made it to the finals with his team and they versus the Golden State Warriors, the best team at the time with a talented player called Stephen Curry. They lost that year in the finals. The following year, the same two teams met, as in last year, in this seven-game final series. See, basketball, they have seven games, just the way it is. But unfortunately, the the Cleveland Cavaliers were losing. And they were down three matches to one when the next match was going to um, San Francisco, I mean, not San San Francisco, I think, to the Golden State Warriors. It was a game that they were expected to lose. But what occurred? LeBron James stepped it up. For that game, and the game followed, he scored 41 points, and he basically carried his team to victory. And on the final game, game seven, the decider, he had one of the best basketball games you'll ever see in history as he carried his team to victory. He finally did it. And at the siren or the buzzer, this six-foot-six giant broke down into tears. And a few weeks later, on a magazine, this photo was released, which was LeBron James, the promise keeper. As someone who plays basketball and at times thinks that I'm like LeBron, even though I'm not, uh, I'm impressed by him. You know, it's hard not to be. You know, what he did was incredibly impressive. But I tell you, I'm even more impressed by. I'm impressed by the God of the Bible. Because what God does is so much more impressive than what even LeBron James did. Let me point this out to you. And by going through Zachariah's song, or in other words, his prophecy, where he predicts the future... And I want to point out to you how Jesus, who we'll learn about next week as a baby, fulfills this prophecy. So hopefully it'll come up on the screen, the Bible reading. Let me point this out to you. Verse 69 says this, Jesus, no, sorry, 68, sorry. Jesus is the one that redeems God's people. Verse 69, he is the strong horn of salvation that comes from the house of David. Verse 71, He is the one that saves us from our enemies, from Satan's sin and death. Verse 72 to 73, he is the promised offspring of Abraham that blesses the world. Verse 74, he is the rescuer who saves us so we may serve God without fear. As the book of Luke demonstrates, talks about as we go through the Gospels, what we see is that Jesus is the savior of the world. What he does is so much more impressive to show that God is faithful to his promises. That God is the ultimate promise keeper. You see, I think maybe as Christians, or maybe even someone who's checking out the faith for the first time, you can look at the Bible and you're like, this is a really big book. And you can turn to the New Testament, which is a good place to start if you're checking out the faith. But you can sort of really grow in love with the New Testament. You know, it's about a quarter of the Bible. It's practical. It's concrete. We can relate to it. And we can sort of just skip over the Old Testament, which is about three quarters of the Bible. But you know what? God wrote his word the way he did. And he did it this way over thousands of years so that when Jesus rocked up, we knew that God is faithful to his promises, that we can trust him, that we can depend upon him, that he is good. You see, the first thing I want us to grasp and get in our head from this passage is that God is faithful to us. He is faithful to us. You know, he fulfills his Old Testament promises and he will fulfill his New Testament promises. He will forgive us of sin. There is eternal life. God is in control of the future. He will work through the messiness of our life. He will give us the gift of the Holy Spirit so that God is with us and will be with us through our life. There's so many promises in the New Testament and God will fulfill them. He is good. He is a promise-keeping God. And so, look, I don't know what doubts or anxieties you're currently going through right now. I don't know as you walk through this building what's sort of going through your head for the week to follow. I don't know if you're thinking about your work or relationship or maybe some sort of health situation. But right now, I want you to understand this. No matter what trials or temptations you go through, if you follow Jesus, God is with you. Through the pains and horrors of disease, depression and divorce... God is with you. Through the frustration of unemployment, relationship breakdowns, and even seeing family members who are far away from God, God is with you. And He is faithful to you. He will work through the messiness of life. He will forgive you and He will bring you to Himself. And He will grow your joy in Him. Even when God is silent to your prayers, painfully silent. God is faithful. He is good. I'll be straight with you. He might not answer your prayer the way he answered Elizabeth. He may not give you a baby when you're really old, but he is still faithful. He's still faithful. And so right now, I want you to sort of think that through. And later on after the sermon, I want you to reflect on what are you anxious about and how does the faithfulness of God help you through that? A bit of a preparation for that. Point number one, God is faithful to us. God is faithful to us. Let's now point about, talk about point number two, how we can be faithful to him, how we can be faithful to him. Uh, this week, I completed a, a pre-learner motorbike course at Unundera, uh, where I live, great suburb. Um, and that was fun. I'd never ridden a motorbike before, so I almost crashed a few times and sawed it at least a thousand times. Uh, but I, enough about the motorbikes. When I was there, I met someone who's a bit of a celebrity, someone who's a little bit famous. You see, I met this guy who's an Olympian. Now, uh, he's actually been in the Olympics twice, uh, for swimming, uh, but he's never won a medal. But after it was a two day course, so after the first day, I went home and I Googled him, and he has a Wikipedia page. So he's got to be legit, he's got to be famous, you know, he's a big deal. Now, if you don't know what Wikipedia is, um, if you, anyone who's famous these days, uh, you won't have one of these, by the way, I hate to break it to you, uh, will have a Wikipedia page. So if you Google them, it'll come up and it'll tell you details about that person. So if you're famous these days, you'll have a Wikipedia page, hands down, like LeBron James, huge Wikipedia page. But on top of that, if you're famous, you also have an entourage, or you have a group of people that go with you whenever you go somewhere. Give you an example, if you're maybe the president or the prime minister or even LeBron James, before you go somewhere, you'll have a security team that will go before you. Make sure everything's safe, make sure there's no bombs or any dodgy people. Or you also have public relations. Go and make sure everything's pretty for your arrival. See, if you're really important, you'll have an entourage that will go before you. You know what? Jesus, probably the most important person in the world, had someone go before him. And that was John the Baptist. You see, in many ways, John was born and lives so that he may make Jesus look good. He came to prepare the way for Jesus. But I think because all of us, well, most of us who follow Jesus care about Jesus, obviously, we can, we can read the Gospel of Luke and read these first few chapters, and we can just skip over John. You're like, yeah, yeah, I get it. He came to prepare the way. He's really not that important. Let's, let's just get to Jesus. But you know what's interesting in Luke's Gospel is twice we're told that John was a great man. In Luke 1, we're told that he will be great in the sight of the Lord. In Luke 7, even Jesus says this. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Which begs the question, you know, why was John so great? You know, what did he do so that he was so great? Well, if you don't know much about John, let me teach you about him or remind you if you do. So let me talk to you about John and then explain to you why he was so great. So, Chapter 1, verse 80, it says this. It says, John, or the child, grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. In other parts of the Bible, we learn that John didn't drink alcohol. We also learn that he was a pretty stylish fellow, and he only dressed in camel's hair and a leather belt. And also, yeah, he was a master chef, and all he ate was wild locusts and honey. Um, If I'm honest with you, that's weird. Um, And John was a little bit weird. Uh, but these peculiar traits is not why he was so great. Instead, John was great because he was a servant, because he was an evangelist, and because he was obedient to God's call. Let me go through these things. Firstly, he was a servant. You see, uh, there's another part in the Bible, in the Gospels, where Jesus' disciples come up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, how do we become great? And Jesus turns to them and says, you need to become a servant to war. You know, that's exactly what John was. We're also told in the Bible that um, as John is baptizing people in the Jordan River in Israel, that it tells us that basically all the people of Jerusalem and Judea, that's a big area, went out to John. You see, what was going on here is that John was basically planting a megachurch. You know, it's probably called Jordan River Baptist Church, you know, and he was the main pastor. He's just dunking people, preaching people, calling them to repent of their sin. You know, he planted this huge church. And then what happened when Jesus showed up? He didn't hold on to his people, but he released his people. He said, he must increase, that's Jesus, and I must decrease. John was servant-hearted, and he served for the glory of God, the glory of Jesus, and not himself. We can learn from him in many ways in that regard. He was great because he was a servant, but also he was great because he was an evangelist. In Luke 1, verse 77 and 78, his father, Zechariah, says that John will give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of God. Look, to be blunt, what the Bible teaches us is that there is a heaven and that there is a hell, and that either you belong to Jesus and are saved through him, or you're not. Unfortunately, everyone in all of history fits into these two categories. And the good news of the gospel is that the way to be transferred from hell to heaven is not through what you do, but it's through what Jesus did on the cross. The good news is that Jesus comes, who is the saviour of the world, who lives the life we should have lived and then dies the death that we should have died. You see, John knew this good news. He knew that the Lord was coming, the saviour was coming. And so he proclaimed to people this: how they're sinful and they need to repent and they need to look out for the saviour. Some people estimated that uh, John would have converted about a few thousand people, even more than that. You know, he's a very gifted evangelist. You know what's really interesting about John is a lot of the people that he converted were actually religious people. You see, there would have been so many Jews that would have gone to the Jordan River to see what he was doing. And they would have been thinking, yeah, John, you should baptize those filthy people. And then John turned to them and called them, you hypocrites. You know, you may look like you follow God on the outside, but you're far from him on the inside. And for Jews to be baptized was was just unheard of. And that's what John called them to do. We can learn from John in many ways, and one way we can learn is that we can pray for our family and friends who don't know Jesus, and that we can seek to share the gospel like John did. John was great because he was a servant, but also he was an evangelist, and thirdly, because he was obedient to God's call. See, John is an interesting man, um, but if we're straight, he had a difficult life. He had a difficult call. You see, John would have grown up reading the scriptures, and he would have known that the prophets have a tough job. You know, most of the Old Testament prophets end up murdered or exiled. You know, he knew that people don't like it when prophets tell them that they're sinful and they need to repent. People really don't like that. You know, as far as we know, John lived a lonely life. He was never married, never had children, and he died young. You know, he died after he faithfully told King Herod at the time to stop sleeping with his brother's wife. And King Herod didn't like that and chopped off his head. You know, he lived a difficult life. And that's the reason why he was so great is because he was obedient to God's call on his life. He trusted in God and that God was faithful. See, John was great because he was a servant, he was an evangelist, and he was obedient to God's call. And all of us can learn from him in many ways. But as we seek to try and apply this passage, what I want to make clear is that God doesn't want you to be John. You know, he wants you to learn from him. Does he want you to be a servant, an evangelist, and obedient? Yes, but he doesn't want you to be John. He doesn't want you to be John. It should be a relief to some of us that we don't have to live in the desert and eat locusts and honey and dress in camel's hair. But that's what God doesn't want. He doesn't want us to be John. One of the most uh, famous footballers in the world, I'm sorry for the sports illustrations, it's all I got this week, um, is a guy called Paul Pogba. Uh, he's a Frenchman, and last year he was bought by Manchester United for 151 million dollars. So he's the most expensive footballer of all time. And his team Adidas, uh, sorry, his team Manchester United is sponsored by the sports company Adidas. Maybe you've heard of them. And so last year, when Paul changed teams, Adidas created a new ad to promote their products. And I really like this ad. Like I know that's strange, but I really like this ad. Basically, it has Paul Pogba speaking into the, um, into the camera, and has some dance music going on, and then Paul says a few words. Let me read this out to you, uh, and see what I can try and you know, Im- mimic his voice. He says this, he says, you, you will never be me, you'll never play like me, you'll never wear this shirt or dance like me, you will never be me. And you're a bit like, whoa, okay, that's pretty intense. Like, Where's this ad going? And then it shifts gears a little bit. And then all of a sudden you have this narrator come on who's an English guy. So let me try and do an English voice for you. Uh, And this is what the narrator says. He says, you, I don't want to be you. I don't want to be anything like you. I don't want to play like you or dance like you or wear your name on my back. I don't want your signature or your signature moves. I don't want your name yelled at in your game. You, I don't want to be you. I just want your boots. <laughs> and then it has this ad of like all well, these Adidas boots and like, you know, it just looks awesome. Like I don't even play soccer anymore and I want to buy the boots. You know, it's great. I love it. They're like, Joel, why are you telling the this story? Um, basically, when you know, when you see, Adidas is trying to do there, they're trying to say, look, we don't want you to be Paul Pogba. We want you to be yourself, but we want you to have the shoes so you can be like Paul Pogba and do what he does. You know, as we come to this passage and this great man, John, God doesn't want us to look at this and go, I should be John. But instead, he wants us to be filled with the Holy Spirit like John so we can go be ourselves and do some of the things that John did. It's really important that we grasp that. You see, earlier today, I asked you, I said, I mean, I said my two points is that we, is that God is faithful to us and we can be faithful to him. And I think the thing I want us to learn from John's story and John's greatness is is that we can be faithful to God. We can be a servant. We can be an evangelist. We can be obedient to his call by the power of the Holy Spirit, by being filled with the Holy Spirit. For those who don't know, as Christians, we believe in a Trinitarian God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we believe the Holy Spirit is not a force, but he is God, that he loves, that he speaks, and that he grieves. And that the Spirit is given to us to point us to Jesus, but also to equip us for the sake of God's mission. He fills us as well. Now, let me explain to you what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, when you become a Christian for the first time, the Holy Spirit works through your life. He gives you a new heart, new affections. And we're told in Ephesians that He is our seal of our salvation. And so, therefore, you'll never, leave, you'll never lose sorry, the Holy Spirit's presence. He'll always be with you. And at the same time, we're also told that the Spirit fills us at different times after our conversion. Now, we're probably thinking, what does that look like? That's a good question. And I think too often when we try to answer that question, we go to the book of Acts. And we see these miraculous things. You know, we see people speaking in tongues or prophesying or doing miracles. And feel like, well, I don't, I'm not doing that. So clearly the Spirit is not filling me. You know, what's interesting, though, is that Luke wrote Acts. And he obviously wrote the Gospel of Luke, too the book before Acts, and he talks about the Holy Spirit in this gospel more than any other gospel. And so when it comes to understanding that question, what does it look like to be Spirit-filled, we need to look at Luke's gospel as well as Acts. And when we look at both, what we'll see is that the Spirit works in different ways, in in different people at different times. Specifically, if you look at Luke and Acts, you'll see that the Spirit fills people so that the gospel may be proclaimed, Yes, there's prophecy, there's people praising God, there's people speaking in tongues, there is miracles. But being filled with the Spirit looks different and and looks in many different ways. If I have to summarize what the Spirit does and what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit in a generalized term, I would say that it looks like when you're filled by the Spirit that you have a greater love for God, that you have greater victory over sin, and you have greater power for ministry and the mission of the church as the Spirit equips us. And so church, right now, I just want to encourage you and I just want to say to you that we can be faithful to God. Right now, in our circumstances, in the different seasons, calling, places, workplaces we're in, we can be faithful to God. And we can do what he's calling us to do. You know, at times, I don't know about you, but I can feel burdened by the responsibility that I have from pasturing you guys and i'm sure it's the same for you you can feel burdened about not knowing the future and how can you be faithful where you are how can you love those around you how can you serve your church it can feel burdensome yeah, the good news is we can be faithful not because we're strong because of the gift of the holy spirit the spirit who equips us convicts us and grows us but here's the thing what we're told in the scriptures is that the holy spirit doesn't fill us automatically See, what we're told is that we can grieve the Spirit or we can be filled by the Spirit. And so the unfortunate truth is, if there's unrepentant sin in our life or if there's unbelief in our life, like Zachariah, then the Spirit won't fill us and equip us for the sake of God's church and His mission, but instead, He'll just be grieving over our sin. And so today, if you're like, okay, God, I want you to work through me, the first step is to let the Spirit convict you to shine light into the darkness of your heart and to point you to your Saviour, Jesus, and how you're forgiven by the cross. Because the Spirit wants to point you to Jesus. Um, a few years ago, I used to go scuba diving with my father. Uh, he still goes scuba diving. I don't, uh, which is a shame. But um, years ago, when we went scuba diving, we were 20 metres underneath the surface, uh, and we were trying to swim towards these um, torpedoes in Jervis Bay, and so we are rushing a little bit. And as we were swimming, my regulator, that's the, the thing that you breathe through, like Darth Vader, like... Uh, you know, that thing. Uh, anyway, as I was breathing, all of a sudden some water came through my regulator and I started to freak out. And so what I did is I looked for my dad because he's my buddy and I swam to him as quick as I could. Probably was only a few seconds, but to me felt like hours. Grabbed him and then I grabbed his backup regulator, his safety regulator, put that in my mouth and started to breathe and started to relax. As I did that, my dad calmed me down, and then he just pointed to my side and how I have a backup regulator. <laughs> Gave it to me, I put it in my mouth, and I was able to breathe. Everything was okay, and I continued on my dive, and it was just my regular one. It was, it was um, playing up at the time. I think that story is really helpful because it reminds me personally when it comes to the Holy Spirit, You know, I feel like I've got to do all of these things and all of a sudden I can't breathe. I can't do these things. And I forget that actually I've already been equipped to do them. That the Holy Spirit is by my side. He's ready to fill me. He just wants me to trust in him and come before and ask for his help. You know, I think at church, at our church, you know, we're a bit more conservative than charismatic. And so I think at times, you know, we, 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 we fall into the error of actually not even thinking about the Holy Spirit or talking about him that much. You know, and I think that's for, it comes from a good heart because we know there's dangers in going to the other end of the spectrum and actually worshiping the Holy Spirit and only talking about the Holy Spirit, which is weird because, you know, the Holy Spirit tells us to talk about Jesus and praise Him. And I think as well, we see the danger in trying to chase experiences, spiritual highs like a roller coaster or an amusement park and try to be filled with the Spirit so that our doubts may be comforted and take it away. We see those dangers but then we go to the other end of the spectrum. We actually don't ask for the Spirit's help. We actually don't say, Spirit, equip me for the sake of your church. Spirit, be with me. And so tonight, I want to encourage you and say that we can be faithful to God, but not by yourself. That you need the Holy Spirit's help. You need to be filled with the Spirit. And to do that, you can't be grieving Him in unrepentant sin and unbelief. And so, can I encourage you to let the Spirit convict you, shine into your life? Let the word of God convict you. Open it up. The spirit wrote it through his servants for our sake. Come to church and be around God's people where the spirit is seeking to work through us and put us on mission for Jesus. Church, from this passage, there's two things that I want us to get. Number one, God is faithful to us. But number two, we can be faithful to him as well. You see, God is the ultimate promise keeper. He is faithful to us. And in return, we can be faithful to him. We won't do so perfectly, yeah, that's the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to do it perfectly. Jesus has already done that for us. There's forgiveness found in him, which demonstrates that God is faithful to us, even when we're not faithful to him. You know, at the same time, may we not be crippled. May we realize that we can be faithful to God in return. May we realize that we can be servants. We can be evangelists. We can be obedient to God's calling in our life. Not by our own strength, but by the Spirit's working through us. At the start, I asked you, are you good at keeping promises? I confess, I fall short of that. The good news of the gospel is that God is a promise keeper. And that his son Jesus demonstrates this. He fulfilled the Old Testament promises and he will fulfill the new. Jesus is coming back. May we seek you or tell others about him. And if you're yet to give your life to him, I encourage you to do so. And live a life of joy and a life of eternity that is to come. How about I pray to close? Father God, we want to thank you so much for your son, Jesus. And we thank you that he demonstrates how you are faithful to us, how he went to the cross to die for our sin, how he resurrected to show that he defeated our enemies and that he gave us the gift of your Holy Spirit so that we may follow you all our days. Spirit, we pray that you may come into our life, that you may convict us of our sin and that you may point us to our Savior, Jesus. Spirit, we pray that you fill us, not so that our doubts may be comforted, but for the sake of your church and your mission, so more people can come to know and love your son, Jesus. I mean, I'm the father's son. We thank you so much for the, our church and the gift it is to open your word. And we pray you work through our life. Help us to remember that God is faithful and that we can be faithful to him in return. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the next minute, or